there are three things that I think a lecture on love and music should at least mention, even in passing. Romeo and Juliet, Tristan and Isolde, and 1967's Summer of Love. Crucially, I don't intend to deal with the distinction between eros as desire-based love and agape as self-sacrificial love, although you might wish to decide as we go along which of the musical examples exhibits either eros or agape, or possibly even both. Over the years, music has been offered as a love token from composers to the objects of their affection. The Austro-Bohemian composer Gustav Mahler, for instance, wrote the adagietto of his fifth symphony for Alma Schindler, whom he was soon to marry. They met in November 1901. Mahler was 41, Alma was 22. Less than four months later, they were married and Alma was already pregnant. Mahler's celebrated adagietto is a love song without words and was written about and for Alma. As you can see, here's Mahler addressing Alma. My ray of sun, I cannot tell you with words how I love you. I can only declare my longing, my love and my bliss. The other four movements of Mahler's Fifth Symphony are for large orchestra, but the adagietto is for the much more intimate orchestration of just strings and harp. Here's the opening of Mahler's adagietto from a recording made in 1926, making it one of the earliest electrical recordings. The music is performed here with love. conductor Willem Mengelberg conducting Mahler's Adagietto on 78 RPM discs in 1926 with the Concertgebouw Orchestra. Mahler had written a love poem for Alma, which Mengelberg copied into his conducting score of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. Wie ich dich liebe. How I love you. And these German words, written by Mahler, fit the tune of the Adagietto. In its orchestral version, Mahler's Adagietto is much more than a symphonic movement. It's a song without words, indeed, a love song without words. The Czech composer Leos Janacek gave the nickname Intimate Letters to his second string quartet. Janacek wrote the string quartet for Kamila Stoslova a woman 38 years Janacek's junior. In spite of both of them being married, Camilla and Leos exchanged more than 700 letters over a decade. And in 1928, the last year of Janacek's life, the composer wrote to Camilla almost every day. 
of his second string quartet, he wrote to Camilla that she was, quote, behind every note, you living, forceful, loving. Those notes of mine kiss all of you. They call for you passionately. Within a year, Janacek died with Camilla at his side. At the other end of Love's timeline, Benjamin Britten wrote the seven sonnets of Michelangelo near the beginning of his relationship with the singer Peter Piers. It was the first music that Ben wrote specifically for Peter to sing, and each of the seven songs deals with an aspect of love. Here's the end of the seventh and final song of the cycle, Michelangelo's Sonnet 24, as set by Benjamin Britten. Peter Piers and pianist, the composer Benjamin Britten. The piano finishes the last song of the cycle without the voice. The composer has the final say at the piano and the singer falls silent. Indeed, in all seven songs, Britten includes a piano coda for himself to play, the longest of which is the one that ends the final song. However, in life, it was the other way around and Sir Peter Piers survived Lord Britain by almost 10 years. So where did the association between love and music begin? Presumably with mating calls in nature and fertility songs. On a more tender level with lullabies, which are a parent's love song to a baby. The earliest surviving love song dates from around 3,000 years ago. It's a Mesopotamian love poem in Sumerian. It's called the love song of Shusin. Shusin was a king of Ur. And its music doesn't survive. The Bible's great love poem, the Song of Solomon, possibly dates from the third century BCE. Again, no music survives that might have been associated with its original Hebrew text. But many musical settings of passages from the Song of Solomon have been composed over the last half millennium. Here's one such by the 16th century Flemish composer Jacob Clemens, Ego Flos Campi. The woman begins, I am merely a flower of the field, a lily of the valley. The man replies, my darling, when compared to other young women, you are a rose among thorns. You are a garden spring, a fountain of pure water, refreshing streams which flow down from Libanus. And the music pours out in waves of amorous polyphony. At the end of Clemens's motet, the gently undulating music specifically depicts water flowing down from Libanus. Clemens uses a resonant seven-voice texture for this amorous passage. More usual in continental polyphony of the 16th century might be a four or five voice texture. Six voices gives a generous sound, while seven voices, as here, is especially lush. And the motet culminates in a particularly sensuous final cadence. You have to wait until the end of the 19th century 
to experience a similar kind of tenderness as a cadence in unaccompanied vocal music. If you want to follow the lowest part from this seven-voice motet, then the extract begins at the red line. Que fluent impetu de Libano, the waters which flow down from Libanus. late 12th century poem, Tristan und Isolde, by the Alsatian Gottfried von Strasbourg, is a chivalric romance. It became the basis of Richard Wagner's 1850s music drama, Tristan und Isolde. The opening musical phrase of Wagner's Tristan und Isolde has become a staple element in the discussion of 19th century European music. The first chord of the prelude is known as the Tristan chord. The opening three notes form the grief motif, and the next chord, the Tristan chord, begins the longing motif. Over four hours of through-composed music, the story unfolds. Tristan, a Cornish knight, travels to Ireland to escort Princess Isolde to Cornwall so that she may marry Tristan's uncle, King Mark. On the journey to England, Tristan and Isolde drink a love potion, thinking it the elixir of death. Both wanted to end their lives. Tristan, because he had killed Isolde's previous fiancé, and wished to atone, Isolde also wanted to end her miserable existence. But the love potion does its magic, and the pair's adulterous relationship ensues until Tristan is mortally wounded by one of King Mark's soldiers. Isolde then sings her heart out and dies. That passage is often referred to as the Liebestod, love death. It was named Liebestod by the Hungarian composer-pianist Franz Liszt, who later became Wagner's father-in-law. But this climax was referred to by Wagner himself as Verklärung, transfiguration. The composer Gerard McBurney describes the final scene of Wagner's Tristan und Isolde as an extraordinarily synesthetic experience. Tristan's blood flows from his body and the smell of the blood becomes floral to Isolde. Isolde feels flowers embracing her body and the flowers become melody. Smell, hearing, sight and touch combine so that one can physically taste Wagner's Gesamtkunstwerk, total artwork. On a smaller scale, Wagner wrote the Siegfried Idyll as a birthday present to Cosima, his second wife, 
upon the birth of their son, Siegfried. The Siegfried Idyll is a symphonic poem for chamber orchestra. It was originally scored for chamber orchestra because the 13 players had to fit onto the stairs of the Wagner's villa in Lucerne. Cosima woke up to a surprise live performance of the Siegfried Idyll given just outside her bedroom on Christmas Day of 1870. Here it is in its revised version for full orchestra. secret Santa that must have been. Wagner claims that he conceived the main theme six years earlier, at the moment when he, Wagner, and Cosima consummated their relationship. In the event, Wagner seems to have been overstating the case, and the theme seems to have been devised not in the summer of 1864, but in the autumn of that year, while Wagner was on his own and not with Cosima at all. But that's not such a good love story. Claude Debussy, like any European composer growing up in the late 19th century, was captivated by the music of Wagner. An obvious example is the beginning of Debussy's song cycle, Fête Galante, Courtship Parties. In 1882, Debussy's song cycle appeared in manuscript with a dedication to a Madame Vanier, an amateur soprano. Songs that have only ever lived by her and which will lose their graceful charm if they never pass through her melodious fairy mouth. The married Marie Blanche Vanier was Debussy's first love. Marie Blanche was 16 years her husband's junior and 14 years older than the 18-year-old Debussy. During their affair, Debussy wrote the alluring green-eyed redhead more than 20 songs. See here on Sourdine, muted from that cycle, Fête Galante. See the manuscript on the left. The song originally began with a Debussyan trademark chord of the ninth. Let this calm twilight penetrate our love with deep quiet. Debussy wrote to Madame Vanier, these songs conceived by your memory can only belong to you as their composer belongs to you. By its second version in 1891, see on the right, on Sourdine opened the cycle, but the dedication had been changed to Miss Catherine Stevens, with whom Debussy was by then in love. I know that's not what it says, stay with me. The music had totally changed, so at least the love token wasn't just straight re-gifted. In the rewrite, the opening chord for Catherine Stevens had become Wagner's Tristan chord, transposed up an octave. To refresh your memory, here's the opening of Wagner's Tristan. Take that Tristan chord and transpose it up one octave. And that high Tristan chord begins the revised version of Debussy's En Sourdine. When the song was published, 21 years after it had been written for the lovely Marie Blanche, it had been dedicated for a third time to the wife of Robert Godet, as you can see. 
Godet was one of Debussy's oldest and most faithful friends. Amongst other things, they had shared a love of Wagner's music drama Parsifal. But Debussy struggled with Wagner's pervasive influence, and Debussy began actively to set about ridding his music of Wagner's arch-romantic German style. And in the final movement of Debussy's Children's Corner Suite, Debussy cruelly parodied the opening of Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. Debussy mockingly asks the pianist to play with great emotion and then proceeds to parody Wagner's music. Debussy jazzes up the Tristan chord itself and follows it with a musical cackle of derisive laughter. The gesture is then repeated just in case the object of Debussy's spite has not been properly appreciated. Wagner's great love story is entirely demeaned by Debussy. It's served up as piano music fit to be performed by a child and dedicated to Debussy's three-year-old daughter. Debussy's complicated response to Wagner's music was perhaps the very definition of a love-hate relationship. Of all Shakespeare's plays, Romeo and Juliet, a story of star-crossed lovers, is the one that accounts for more love-inspired music than any other. The French composer Hector Berlioz wrote a choral symphony in the late 1830s, which was inspired by seeing Anglo-Irish actress Harriet Smithson on stage as Juliet in Paris. In the late 19th century, Tchaikovsky wrote an orchestral fantasy overture. Another Russian composer, Serge Prokofiev, wrote a ballet in the mid-20th century. And in Leonard Bernstein's spin-off West Side Story, set in mid-1950s New York, the heartstrings of the listener are tugged every which way. So here's a Romeo and Juliet musical summary in one minute. Symbolist play, Pelias et Melisande, also ends with the death of both of the lovers. Written in the early 1890s by the Belgian author Maurice Metterlink, Pelias et Melisande became the basis for a number of musical settings composed over the next decade and a half. First was Gabriel Faure's incidental music for an 1898 English language production of the play in London. In fact, Claude Debussy had been approached for the London project before Foray, but turned the commission down on the grounds that he was already busy adapting the play into an opera. Indeed, Debussy's opera was premiered in Paris in early 1902. And around that time, the Austrian composer Arnold Schoenberg began work on a symphonic poem. The composer Richard Strauss had suggested the subject matter to Schoenberg but neither seemed aware of the existence of Debussy's new opera. And within three years, Jean Sibelius had composed incidental music for a Swedish-language production of the play at the Swedish Theatre in Helsinki. So here's seven years of Pelias and Melisande in 50 seconds.
The list of film scores concerned with depicting love is a long one. In 1970, Love Story, the Hollywood classic, was shunned by leading actors Jeff and Bo Bridges, Michael Douglas, John Voight, and Michael York. Ryan O'Neill eventually played opposite Ali McGraw, and the film's main musical theme by the late Francis Lay won the French composer a well-earned Oscar. Over 50 years later, not only does the love story theme remain close to the public's heart, but the melody's opening interval has become an educational tool in identifying a descending minor sixth. Shakespeare in Love also earned its composer an Oscar. Stephen Warbeck picked up his Academy Award in 1999. Mark Norman's story fictionalises Shakespeare falling in love while writing Romeo and Ethel, and Warbeck's score integrates modern and period musical instruments. Music for Shakespeare in Love is a far cry from the ostentatiously star-studded montage of songs that comprises the score of Love Actually. Much of the narrative is played out to the accompaniment of hits by the Beach Boys, Mariah Carey, Otis Redding, Eva Cassidy, Joni Mitchell, Nora Jones, Phil Collins and others. But those songs are woven together by a beguilingly memorable original score composed by Craig Armstrong for this 2003 modern classic. And as every film director knows, the score is important not just to support the action within the film itself, but thereafter as a recognition trigger. You may not be able to recall the music to Love Actually just yet, but as soon as you hear it, you'll know it's Love Actually. As I discussed in the first lecture in this series, Nostalgia and Music, the older among us are gifted with an involuntary reminiscence bump. The reminiscence bump is the tendency for people over 40 to have increased and enhanced recollection of events that occurred during adolescence and early childhood, early adulthood. The sweet spot is at 13 years old for girls and 14 years old for boys. Occurring right at my own reminiscence bump in 1975 is 10cc's I'm Not In Love. But I'm Not In Love had to fight hard to be released at all. The song was originally written as a guitar-based bossa nova composed mostly by Eric Stewart with some input from Graham Gouldman. The other two band members... Kevin Godley and Lawrence Cream had a visceral aversion to the song and the boss aversion was erased. No recording of it survives. But because the office staff carried on singing the song after its cancellation by Godley and Cream, it was resurrected, but with a wall of sound vocal backing as conceived by Kevin Godley. Lol Cream suggested using tape loops, the influence of the Beatles' Revolution 9 of seven years earlier. So one of the late 20th century's iconic pop songs was resurrected, having been given up for dead. I'm Not In Love reached number one in the UK charts and number two in the, era, in the US. Here is that wall of sound. It's just 
just a silly face I'm going through And just because I call you up Don't get me wrong In spite of the way that the lyrics might superficially read, this is a love song, and it was written for Eric Stewart's wife, Gloria. In 1975, the couple had been married for nine years. Now, it's been 55 years. It turns out they are in love after all. <laughs> Let's stick with 1975, my reminiscence bump. Another 1975 heterosexually influenced song was Queen's Love of My Life. The ballad was written by Freddie Mercury for Mary Austin, whom Mercury met in 1969. Freddie became engaged to Mary in 1973, and the engagement stayed afloat through the next three years before foundering. Mercury was famously gay, but he never actually came out publicly. There was no real need, certainly by the late 1970s, it was obvious. While Mary Austin and Mercury never actually married, Mercury said of Austin that, to me, she was my common-law wife. To me, it was marriage. Moreover, Freddie said, I couldn't fall in love with a man the same way I have with Mary. All my male lovers asked me why they couldn't replace Mary, but it's simply impossible. Love of my life, don't leave me. Taken my love, my love, desert me, love of my life, can't you see? Composers often have colourful biographies, and in particular, they often have colourful love lives. Perhaps that's why prospective fathers-in-law often seem frequently to object to the idea of their daughters marrying musicians. Edward Elgar was given a poem by one of his piano pupils, Alice Roberts, who was almost nine years the composer's senior. Elgar duly set the wind at dawn to music, and Elgar by now hooked, followed it up with a piece for violin and piano, Salut d'Amour, Love's Greeting, which he offered to Alice as an engagement present. may have bagged Elgar, but she was immediately disinherited by her family. Elgar was nine years younger than his wife, whereas Schumann was nine years older than his. Kreisleriana, an eight-movement composition for solo piano, was composed by Schumann in just four days when he and Clara were deliriously in love. Schumann wrote that, I want to dedicate it to you, yes, to you and nobody else, and then you will smile so sweetly when you discover yourself in it. However, Clara's father, Friedrich, was strongly opposed to their union, and the matter was taken to court. In the event, Robert and Clara won the case and were married the day before Clara's 21st birthday on the 12th of September, 1840. Dedications come and go, as we know from Debussy, and Schumann's Kreisleriana was ultimately dedicated to the Polish composer and virtuoso pianist Frederick Chopin, who seems not to have rated it. Actually, it was worse than that. Chopin said that he liked the design of the title page, 
Now that is damning with faint praise. But it is love music of a particularly acute, indeed bipolar type. Music that contrasts the impulsive and the dreamy side of Schumann's nature. end of the seventh movement of Schumann's Kreis Liriana, written for his wife Clara. After Schumann's breakdown and eventual demise, Clara Schumann became ever closer to the much younger composer Johannes Brahms. But however much they were in love with each other, they never consummated their relationship, far less contemplated marriage. Brahms wrote his six piano pieces of 1893 for Clara the second of which is the achingly beautiful Intermezzo in A. achingly beautiful and so poignant, made all the more personal because the piano was the main instrument both of Brahms and of Clara Schumann. Within four years, they were both dead. They died within a year of each other, Clara first. Music seems particularly able to portray not just the intensity of love, but its many manifestations and functions. For instance, as an engagement present, Robert Schumann's Chrysleriana, Mahler's Adagietto, and Elgar's Salut d'Amour. As a late-life offering of unrequited love, Brahms's A Major Intermezzo and Janacek's Second String Quartet. As a piece for lovers to perform together, Britain's Seven Sonnets of Michelangelo. Or ancient love songs from Mesopotamia or from the Old Testament or medieval love songs, such as those by the Trouvère of northern France, or the Troubadours of southern France, or the Minnesinger and the Meistersinger of Germany. Or a medieval romance taken by Wagner and reworked as a music drama on a vast scale. Or the many and varied musical responses to Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, or Metalink's Pelias and Melisande. 
and love songs from any number of composers, not to mention pop songs, folk ballads, and film scores. Anything from a two-minute song to a four-hour opera. And not just vocal music, but instrumental music. Much of it essentially songs without words. And that's not even to touch on music as a vehicle for religious and spiritual love. Here's the crux, I think. Love's greatest gift is its intangibility, as is music's. Here at Gresham, I've sometimes tried to explain the construction of various chords and melodies in an attempt to reveal the composer's craft and music's effect on the listener. But to describe a chord, for instance, as a chord of the 7th, 11th, or 13th, for instance, might help one to appreciate its technical function, but it doesn't come close to describing the effect that hearing that chord might have on one's body and mind. In the same way, love can't be explained solely by recourse to description of physical and mental characteristics. For this lecture, I've chosen music that I love and that speaks to me personally. That's been my main criterion. Any narrative that I've applied to the presentation of the musical examples has been superficial at best and contrived at worst. And then there's the all-important question of time and place. That's to say, the context in which we ourselves are exposed to certain pieces of music. One important context is manifested by the reminiscence bump, the realisation that the music that we hear in our early teens shapes us in some very important ways. So those of us responsible for bringing up and or educating children through music should surely take extra cultural care with children in their early teens. The music that they hear then might have more of an effect on their adult development than we might like to admit. In particular, youth orchestras, youth choirs, residential music courses, outreach products, etc., are all breeding grounds for empathy and love. My first residential orchestral course was in Suffolk in 1974, one year before the peak of my reminiscence bump. I got to play the music of Olivier Messiaen for the first time, the music of Prokofiev for the first time, and crucially, the music of Wagner for the first time. Not only did I get to play under the dynamic baton of Stuart Bedford, but I also got to wave at Benjamin Britten and Peter Pears, who attended the final concert in the Snake Maltings. The peak of my daughter's reminiscence bump will be in 2029. I doubt that I'll be able to resist the temptation to expose her to a rich variety of musical experiences seven years from now. My parental helicopter will be flying low over the BBC proms, for instance, assuming that the proms is still adequately funded by then. Or is it unwelcome cultural engineering to try to influence the reminiscence bump of young people in one's charge. I'll finish by saying just this. To my mind, love and music have one very important feature in common. Neither of them is, or should be regarded as, a luxury. Love and music are fundamental to our well-being, and the combination of the two is nothing less than life-affirming. Thank you. love has been such a common subject for compositions already for hundreds of years. Do you think that love songs can be overdone, or that audiences, composers, may one day lose interest in listening to or writing love songs? Did you say the end bit again? Do you think that um, love songs can be overdone, or that audiences, composers, may one day lose interest in listening to writing love songs? Um, yeah, they can. I mean, to be honest, I, I, I mean, as I've said, I chose those pieces and tried to weave them together because they're all pieces that are very important to me. I mean, there are millions of others I could have chosen. Um, but I fully uh, understand that actually some of those examples would seem to be um, overblown by other listeners, other people. I don't think everybody has exactly the same response, and that's the point because of our sort of our cultural upbringing and this reminiscence bump thing. It, you know, we all have a different uh, approach to it. But I think in the principle of a love song um, as a genre can't possibly go out of date. I mean, love's going to be around, and so is music. So it can't possibly go out of date. But yeah, of course, they're, they're, they're very, very overdone. I mean, I'm going to 
be outspoken. I think probably the favourite extract that I've played here is the Schoenberg Pelléas et Melisande, which many people regard as just totally over the top. It's ridiculous sort of German expressionism of the, the early 20th century, which I particularly love. But other people, I think, would find sort of dripping with, well, almost insincerity, but certainly overblown. So I think we do all have a different response. Um, and that's what I've been trying to get at. And in the end, I haven't been able to get at anything technical that actually you can say that makes for a good love song. Not particularly because people's response are different. But I think sort of at an emotional level, the idea of a love song uh, is, we, we all understand what it is, but we all have our different um, examples of it. I think. But it's never, it's never going to go out of fashion. Um, the concept of the love song. But practically everything I've played today, probably some of it has already gone out of fashion and, and the rest of it will uh, very shortly if it hasn't already. Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, one more. A friend who played in a dance band in the 70s. This is a question about um, the reminiscence bump. A friend who played in a dance band in the 70s said that they gauged the average age of the audience and played music from when they were in their late teens. Does this fit in with the reminiscence bump? That they were playing music um, to people in their late teens, yeah. Um, well, it almost does, but it, it seems, I mean, you're, you're still part of the reminiscence bump in your late teens. As I say, for, um, for girls, it's the, the peak is 13, and for boys, it's, it's 14. So if you're playing to late teenagers, it's still going to go in in a way that it's m much more readily than it is 10 years after that. So yeah, it's a good thing to uh, play to teenagers. But I say the thing that, that worries me, now that I've been made aware of it for the last few years, I'm thinking about it, thinking about the effect that it had on me, and that, that lecture in September, when I was absolutely, I, was, I could not believe when I looked at the proms programme for 1975, uh, there it all was, all my favourite music. And I had no idea until I looked back at the programmes, which blissfully are all online, that actually I'd been exposed to that music absolutely at the height of my reminiscence bump. And I was, myself, as I've said very uh, gratefully, I was completely controlled by the BBC proms in 1975. Um, so it does seem to be a good thing. Well, if you believe you're doing a good thing, then yes, you should address the teenagers in your audience, it's going to have an effect on them. But it's also a huge, this is what I'm realizing now, it's a huge responsibility. If you do have young people in front of you, as I do from time to time, as I say, and with a little girl, bring up a little girl, it's uh, it, the responsibility uh, that you have, um, I, think, I think is extraordinary. Surely we must um, take, I don't know exactly what you can do about it, and um, you know, we all, I'm sure, uh, have different ideas about the sort of music that, um, uh, girls and boys in their early teenage years should listen to. I mean, well, I'm, I've made it perfectly clear this, <laughs> really, everything I play, that's, that's what I think is good. Uh, some of it in my own reminiscence bump as well. Um, so, yeah, addressing teenagers is, um, is, as always has, we've always known that it's important. Of course, that's ed school education, isn't it? But um, this reminiscence bump thing for, for me is, is just, as I say, particularly with my daughter, you know, who will hit it in sort of nine years' time, I'm already getting set for uh, exactly that year of culture. <laughs> Poor thing. Okay, uh, thank you. So just to give like a little bit of context into like my question. So uh, on my 17th birthday, which was like last Friday, my girlfriend got me a gift. It wasn't a beautiful composition, unfortunately, but uh, it was a book by Friedrich Nietzsche, and Nietzsche was really inspired by Wagner, so... Like, something that really got to me was, like, towards the end of your lecture, where you're talking about, like, contextual information into music. So the thing with Wagner was he basically said, you know, my music can't be understood now, my music is for the future, and Nietzsche was kind of inspired by this. So do you think there's certain music that... There's certain music which provokes certain emotions which kind of transcend that idea of time that can only be understood in the future? Because, like, music I've listened to in, like, my childhood, uh, I, can't, I, don't, I, can't, I never understood the lyrics until, like, now, so... Um, it, it is interesting. So, the, so the, the basic tenor of what you're saying is, is uh, does some music have to bed down? Does some music, is that what you're saying? Does, does some music have to wait for it to be appreciated? Yeah, uh, yeah I, think, I think it really does. And this is the real thing that worries me. I've been, uh, um, I mean, just, uh, I'll come back to what you're saying, but I'm thinking about the uh, the next lecture in the series, which is music and humour. And it's the same with music and love as it was the same with music and nostalgia. The fact is, you know, what constitutes these things? What constitutes humour and what constitutes nostalgia? And what do people recognise as something that's love? And it is very different. If, you know, what's the context of a musical joke? 
What's the concept of, what, what, of, of, of tugging at the heart, heartstrings? Um, and what I'd really love to find, um, and I've, by playing the examples I have done, I think these are examples that I think have elements to them that mean that they actually can transcend uh, their particular presence and actually have a life that lives thereafter. I couldn't possibly tell you what that is, except I think that all of the music that I've played is absolutely genuinely from the heart. Some of it, some of it more than others, but, 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 but all of it I chose because I genuinely believe that whatever the composers were, and of course Wagner's a very tricky character because, um, you know, the, <laughs> I, mean, I think that's a, that's a, we'll move on, but that's a massive understatement. But uh, in terms of the music, it does have a longevity and I think it has a sort of a, a quality about it. I mean, obviously some people can't enjoy it because of the man and of his context. But I rejoice in the fact that he actually does have a life above and beyond that. It's very uncomfortable, but um, I, I, I do try to get over that. So yes, I, I do think, but if, if the question is, what is it? Um, that enables something to have a shelf life that's longer uh, than just a few years at the top of the charts or orchestras playing it. Um, I've absolutely no idea, but I do think that the genuine, a, a composer genuinely feeling those feelings. I mean, we can all uh, write, and, and that's where um, I think it, a lot of film music is, is, is wonderful, um, but it, it can actually be tied to a time and a place and doesn't always live. The examples that I gave here are ones that I think do actually transcend um, uh, uh, their context. Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, because I deal primarily in classical music, I suppose my life is bent on performing music uh, that I'm keeping alive. Exactly that. And I choose, I think, read, read, um, fairly carefully, the, the, the music that I perform, because there's so much of it, obviously, the music I perform is music for whatever reason I think has, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's passed the uh, test of time, and I feel that I can interpret it in 2022, even though it's written, let's say, in 1550, like the Clemens Motet. So, yeah, I think there is, some pieces have a longer shelf life, and those are the pieces that I try to identify here. As to what makes it, I don't know. I think you just have to avoid... I mean, obviously, you want to make references to where you are and the sort of person you are, because it, it would be... Um, it, it wouldn't be ideal to sort of try to take yourself out of your own context, but um, you, uh, uh, you, you do need, um, in some way, not just to respond to everything that's around you and try and think more deeply. And I'm off at a tangent here, but I remember that... Uh, when BBC Radio 3 played the entire works of Beethoven over, I think it was 10 days or whatever. And in Beethoven, you realise that there's stuff that we really don't particularly want to listen to. It's actually not very good. I'll be shot down in the face, but it's not. And what's the stuff that's not very good? The stuff that absolutely was of his time, where he was fighting his political battles, where he was you know, supporting those causes in music that he really believed in. Um, other music, which transcends that, actual sort of that I mean he was genuine about it, absolutely genuine about it but it doesn't it doesn't work outside the context and to us it's sort of it's it's posturing really so um yeah it's a difficult one isn't it and uh, and you, you have somehow to root yourself in where you are otherwise it's not honest but to provide music and indeed to set words or to write words that are going to uh, stand the test of time yeah were there any other questions? I think there's one at the back. Um, actually, let's take these last two, and then we'll have to end. You suppose there's a universal, intrinsic love language that's inbuilt, and do you suppose that's in humans and in animals? Because you mentioned animals mating. How, for example, do birds know how to make love songs? Yeah, I, I deliberately, I wanted to do um, a section on uh, exactly that because uh, presumably birdsong is the earliest love music that there is. Unfortunately, I don't know uh, enough about it. I'm not a zoologist, I'm not an anthropologist. I'm, 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 and so I decided kind of just to, um, to swerve that one. But um, what was the, the basis of... Um, do, 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 um, I'm wondering if there's a universal... Intrinsic love language. For example, some of the music I noticed was quite dissonant. I could hear some sort of tritones, and some of it was quite lush. So, I mean, I wouldn't expect the dissonant music to be love-songy, and some of it was quite twee, which was a bit over the top. But is there something that would 
universally speak as a love song. Well, I think you've put your mind on it. You've basically described me. You've described the music that I've just played, the music that I like. And yeah, I am, from time to time, a little bit twee, uh, a little bit, little bit dissonant. But, you know, I try to tread a sort of path somewhere through the middle. But I think you're... And that's what I've been trying to get at, actually, in this. And every time I tried to do so, all I realised was that I was actually just trying to describe me and what I like. I like that chord... Um, and it turns out I first heard it when I or first played it when I was 14. Oh, there's the reminiscence bump again. Um, so I don't think there... Re- I mean, I think there are, there are things that certain of us that sort of maybe have the same cultural heritage can agree on, but a lot of us absolutely can't. I couldn't get um, uh, to the bottom of that, and I suspect what that means is maybe humans are more diverse in their emotions than, for instance, a bird. I mean, I think that's probably reasonable to say. So birdsong is remarkably, isn't it, remarkably similar. You know, all these birds of a particular species, they they do the same thing. And we do a kind of same thing, maybe physically more than musically, but no, I don't think there is. So um, uh, what, what, what I found was that actually all the things that I like are kind of various manifestations in its very messed up way of my character. In the same way, I think uh, it, it's found that if you ask, for instance, a priest, uh, a, 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 a Christian priest, to describe Jesus, they describe themselves. And <laughs> when I talk about you know, music that I love, I'm talking about the bits of myself that I'm prepared to share with you. Those are the bits that I love because they're manifestations of my character. Um, and some, yes, and doubtless, some of the pieces that I've chosen there, you would absolutely not relate to in any way. Particularly, um, you obviously seem to be lean towards a love ballad being gently consonant and that kind of thing. I don't know, I just, I, I, I like mixing it up a bit. Gosh. Shall we move on? <laughs> and then the final question, the gentlemen stuff at the come back. Out. <laughs> yeah, at the back there. Yeah, um, I apologise if this is like an unknowable... Um, thing, but do you know, or has there been any research, or even do you think that the music that is listened to by by girls at thirteen or boys at fourteen, the the nature of the relationships, like the technicalities of the relationships in the songs, will influence the nature of their future relationships when they're, you know, in their twenties or thirties? I I haven't been aware of any particular research leading towards that. But even without, I don't need to think about it very much to say, yes, absolutely and completely. But then, again, I fundamentally believe that music has all sorts of power uh, that exerts upon our sort of mental, physical um, well-being. But also, you can use music for all sorts of ways. You can use it to sort of, you know, take yourself up, take yourself down. Um, and yeah, I mean, teenagers are very good at that, aren't they, in particular? Teenagers are very good about, you know, deciding if it's going to be an up day or a down day or it's, I'm going to do that, you know. And, and, and it, can't, it can't help. I mean, I think actually teenagers know, in many ways, I think they know exactly what they're doing and they will probably uh, choose their own um, path through it. But yeah, I have absolutely no doubt um, that, that music is that is a, a genuine, fundamental thing. Some people are more drawn to it than others. I live my life absolutely for it and because of it... Uh, um, other people not so much, but um, yeah, I do think uh, the particular. I mean, when I look at it now, my response to music as an early teenager was delirious. I mean, nothing short of delirious. I couldn't get enough of it of all different types. And yes, of course, that. I mean, that's maybe the kind of, sort of slightly hypermanic person that I am. I think because I've responded to all those different things that went into the melting pot. So yeah, I think it is. It is important, but I mean, this, this subject is a relatively new one to me, and I think in general, but it, it will, it's so much more easy to research these things now because we have, for instance, access to things like the data from Spotify. So it's very easy to see what we all choose. That's where this uh, material has come from. Uh, you know, stuff that would have taken, you know, years, decades. Uh, now somebody sat in front of a computer uh, over a few hours can assemble this data and go, oh, hang on. Oh, that makes sense. So this, this is, this is a, a relatively new subject, but I'm sure uh, it, it's got legs, absolutely. Professor Summerlee, thank you very much for your lecture this evening. Um, uh, just before we thank him, <laughs> um, I did, you mentioned your next lecture on humour and music. And it's going that, to be funny. It's going to yep. be very funny. <laughs> that one, come and join us for a laugh on Thursday, the 31st of March at 6pm. Thank you all for attending, and let's thank Professor Summerlee again. Thank you.